Second Kings chapter 23. Second Kings 23. We've been looking at covenants and characters, kind of the theme of kings. And so we've been looking at God, His faithfulness to His covenant, His character never wavering, never changing. The faithfulness of man, though, is wavering. Sometimes they're keeping their covenant, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they have good character, sometimes they don't. And so we have just come from Judah's best king, King Josiah, and uh, tonight we're going to come to the end of his reign. And then what happens next? Well, on March 20th, 1770 in Boston, Captain William Jones advertised for, quote, a few good men to enlist in the Marine Corps for naval duty. That phrase has become synonymous with the U.S. Marines for over 200 years since that advertisement. And when Josiah finished all his reforms, I'm sure he probably thought, okay, all it will take to keep this going is just for a few good men to stay the course. It's all we need, just a few good men. But unfortunately, Josiah was not followed by a few good men. In fact, he was followed by four very bad men. And tonight we're going to look at the first two. So chapter 23, we begin in verse 26. Remember, verse tw- actually, we'll read verse 25, and then we'll get into verse 26. It says, And like unto him, Josiah, there was no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. I mean, talk about a glowing review from the Lord, the best king Judah had had. You would expect what comes next to not read what we read. Verse 26 says, notwithstanding, despite all this that Josiah did, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, wherewith his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations that Manasseh had provoked him withal. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and will cast off this city Jerusalem which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there." Now you read that, and the human reaction is generally, wait a minute, God, that's not fair. Josiah turned to you with all he had. Why aren't you doing the same for him? Well, there are two reasons that God did not turn away his wrath, even though Josiah turned to him with all his heart. Number one, Jeremiah tells us The prophet Jeremiah was alive and prophesying. His ministry was going on during the time that King Josiah was there. And Jeremiah tells us that while Josiah was genuine, the nation had not truly repented. While Josiah renewed the covenant and the people stood with him in that, their hearts never really turned back to the Lord. And so Jeremiah, many of his sermons talk about the external nature of the revival going on. Their hearts needed to turn to the Lord. They were doing all the right things, all the right worship was going on now, but their hearts were not toward the Lord. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that Josiah's repentance isn't enough to turn away God's wrath completely that's important to understand. You see, sin can't just be ignored or covered over. And no man's righteousness, not even Josiah's, could ever be good enough to remove the consequences we deserve for our sin. No man, of course, until Jesus came. 
right? Josiah, for all of his love for God, was still a sinner. Before the copy of the law was discovered, he tolerated Solomon's worship sites and other things in the nation. So even though he loved God supremely later on, Josiah is not completely innocent. He cannot atone for his people's sin. Now Jesus, in contrast, is completely free of sin. There is no point in his life where he is not innocent. And so that is one of the reasons that there is no other name under heaven that can save men. David can't save men, Moses can't save men, Elijah can't save men, and Josiah can't save men. Therefore, you and I cannot save ourselves or anyone else. Only Jesus can do that. These exiles who are reading this account, they could get their homeland back, they could renew their covenant with God, but they could also break it again and lose their homeland again. And we see that happening, of course. The people that the writer of our book here is writing to, they will eventually come back to their homeland. They'll go back to the promised land. They'll rebuild the temple. And then they will be driven out yet again. Josiah is one of the few men in the Bible who kept his covenant with God, who had solid character. But that isn't where salvation is found, in doing all the right things or having solid character. The only answer, the only rescue for us is a better covenant, one that's not dependent upon our faithfulness, but is dependent upon His, one where our sin is forever judged and we can be forever free. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. And so the difference is that God made a covenant with Israel, and God is going to keep His covenant with Israel because God is a covenant-keeping God. One of my favorite parts of the Bible that has always kind of hit me in the, in the heart is Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel's praying and he's confessing his people's sin. He's like, but Lord, you're a covenant-keeping God. So I'm asking you to have mercy on us, and would you keep your covenant even though we have not kept ours? The whole chapter, the whole prayer is, he keeps reiterating their failure to keep their part of the covenant, but God's character remaining steadfast. It's one of the best prayers in all the Bible. But that covenant, while not flawed, because of anything God did, or not flawed in its, its, its purity and its holiness. The flaw lies in us, in our inability to keep our portion of it. And so, what the Lord decided to do is He said, well, we're going to make a better one. I'm going to make a deal with somebody who can't break His part of the covenant. And so, the new covenant is one between the Father and the Son. And we partake of its blessings by our faith in the Son. He stands for us. He's the one that holds the covenant with the Father for us. It's not based on our ability to perfectly keep it. Amen? Well, verse 28, the Lord says He's going to bring this judgment, verses 26 and 27, even though Josiah turned it around. Now, it does delay the judgment. It delays it all throughout Josiah's lifetime. Verse 28, now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And in his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up against the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. And King Josiah went against him, and he, Necho, slew him, Josiah, at Megiddo when he had seen him. And his servants carried him in a chariot dead from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. What's going on here? Well, toward the end of Josiah's reign, Assyria, if you remember, 
They'd been the dominant power in the region. In fact, in their heyday, they had asserted dominance over Egypt. But Babylon was now the one rising as the main power in the region. And at this point in time, the Babylonians had captured the Assyrian capital of Nineveh three years prior to this event that's recorded in verse 29. The remaining Assyrian forces were grouped in northern Syria, but they were forced to the other side of the Euphrates River after another loss, lost battle against Babylon. Now, while Egypt had suffered a lot at the hands of the Assyrians, they didn't want the Babylonians to replace the Assyrians. They wanted to replace the Assyrians as the main power in the region. So Pharaoh Necho made a deal with the Assyrian leadership, and he took a massive army to link up with the Assyrian army in hopes of bringing down the Babylonian army, and then they would be the ones who would be the power in the region. Now, to get to the Assyrian army, who is in north Syria, then Pharaoh Necho had to bring his troops through Judah. Babylon, while opposed to Assyria and now Egypt, They had been very friendly to Judah up to this point. Remember, they had sent a delegation to King Hezekiah congratulating him on his recovery from a terminal illness. Well, the Egyptians, in contrast, had broken many treaties with Judah when Judah was suffering under the hands of Assyrian oppression. So the Jews had no love for either the Assyrians or the Egyptians. Now, I don't know if Josiah had entered into some kind of mutual support agreement with Babylon or if he just didn't trust Pharaoh passing through his land. But either way, he took out a Judean army to go confront the Egyptians. And the account tells us in other passages of Scripture that Josiah, during the battle, was shot with an arrow, and he died at Megiddo at the young age of 39. And thus passes the the best king that Judah ever had. Maybe not the greatest king, but their best king. And he would be their last good king. Now, question that we have to ask that must be addressed is, well, if God says what Josiah did wasn't enough to turn away his wrath, and he was the last good king they had, does that make Josiah a failure? It's an important question. The answer is no, not at all. You see, every generation, every individual must make their own choice. Josiah set up the nation of Judah for success, not just in his his reign, but for long after his death. So if they didn't have any good kings after him, it was they who chose not to live out what Josiah set up. I think that's important to remember if you're a parent or if you lead a ministry, because success as a parent and success as a ministry is not measured by results. It's measured by faithfulness. I know we've been talking a lot about parenting over the course of our study of kings, and you've probably been taking a few, but at the same time, when your kids grow up and they become adults and they make their own decisions, you're not responsible for those decisions. Are there things you could have done better? I'm sure. I'm sure Josiah could have done some things better as a king, but God's testimony was he was a faithful man. He was the best king you to ever had. God measures success not by results, but by faithfulness. He measures it by our obedience. And God's evaluation is that Josiah was obedient. He was a success. And if we love God supremely like Josiah did, then our testimony will be the same, that we were a success, whether it's as a parent or serving the Lord. Results, Jeremiah was a success, and Jeremiah had very few people who followed him.
Where does this leave the nation of Judah? Well, the Bible says in the end of verse 30 that the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's stead. Now, we need to visit that because it just makes a statement here, but there's some history that we need to look at, okay? The word took here, they took Jehoahaz, it means to select, to choose one over another. In other words, there were some options here, and they chose Jehoahaz, and we need to know who chose him. The people of the land chose him. So what's going on here? Well, there's some politics going on here is what's going on. You see, Josiah had four sons from two wives. Told you he wasn't perfect. Four sons from two wives. A boy named Johanan was the oldest son. Then Eliakim, and they're both from one wife. Then there was Shalom, and then the youngest son was Zedekiah, both from his second wife. What's interesting here is Johanan is never considered at any time in Judah's history for the throne. Never. It's possible maybe he died young, or maybe he just died in battle or something. Either way, it's possible he's not even alive at the time. But he's never considered. So the next would be his full brother, Eliakim. But he's passed over in favor of Shalom, the third child from the other marriage. He said, wait a second, his name's Shalom, why do they call him Jehoaz here? Because when Shalom became king, he changed his name to Jehoahaz, which means the Lord sustains. You see, Judah had experienced God's blessing during Josiah's godly reign. Things had been going downhill for a while, and now things were booming again. Things were doing much better. And the whole reason that Josiah went out to fight against Egypt was to keep Egypt from becoming the new Assyria and now their new problem. Joah says, with this new name change, we're going to go and continue what my dad started. Good times, they're not going to go away. We're going to keep it going. But the problem was, Jehoah has interpreted that to mean we need to be anti-Egypt like dad was. And so his whole thrust was, my dad may have lost that battle, but the Lord's going to help us win the war. And that was his whole kind of rallying cry. His whole entire focus was on maintaining a strong nation and adopting anti-Egypt policies. Now, I mentioned there was politics involved here. There is. Because his older half-brother, Eliakim, was his opposite. He was very pro-Egypt. And it didn't help that he was also a greedy man with an awful reputation. Which is why the people picked Jehoahaz. He was a populist. We can't let another Assyria happen to us. We can't afford to have a greedy puppet of Egypt for a leader in these difficult times. And the people loved him. And so they put him on the throne. It says they took him and they, it says they anointed him. Now, what's interesting about this word anointed, it's not a negative word, but every single time this word is used in the book of Kings, first or second Kings, it's when someone other than the expected person is made king. Always. It's always, they never just say it when the expected guy becomes the next king and they anointed him king over Israel. Nope, never. This word is used when Someone's going, we don't want the guy that's supposed to get it. We want this guy instead. Or when the Lord says, it's not going to be this guy, it's going to be this guy. So again, there's politics going on here. That means that Josiah had either planned something different or Josiah didn't have a succession plan. One of the two is is the case here. Now, 
whatever it is, my guess though is that at the age of 39, Josiah probably expected to reign for many more years. He probably thought, I got plenty of time to whip Eliakim into shape to be the next king or whoever he had planned to choose, which shows that Josiah had a similar flaw to Hezekiah, that while Josiah and Hezekiah both invested well into their nation, they didn't necessarily invest properly into their family. They always thought they had more time. Three of Josiah's sons become kings in Judah, and all three of them turn out to be evil kings. That's not Josiah's fault. But I will say this, particularly to you dads out there, or you men, it doesn't matter how successful you are in your business or in your ministry if what you leave it to is a neglected family. It doesn't matter. You will have misplaced your investments because what they do with what you leave them will end up being misused. We go down to verse 31. And now the writer gives his evaluation of Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Very short. What happened? We'll find out in a few verses. And his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Now, the Jeremiah here is not Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah was a very common name. When you read the genealogies in First Chronicles, you see Jeremiah quite a few times in there. So it was a very common name. But the estimation is he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the writer gives zero details on how he got off the path of following the Lord It only mentions here that he was more like the evil kings who came before Josiah. Now, whenever it says they did evil in the eyes of the Lord, it usually means idolatry. Whenever you see that, it seems to mean idolatry. Now, if we're trying to find out more about Jehoaz, it's hard because he only reigned for three months. So what did he do that was so evil in three months that God said, you're done? Well, we do have some information. The only other time his character is mentioned is Ezekiel chapter 19, verse 3. And Ezekiel 19, verse 3, it calls him like a young lion. It says, referring to the city of Jerusalem, and she brought up one of her whelps, and it became a young lion, and it learned to catch the prey. It devoured men. In other words, he had learned to rip his target in pieces. That's what the word devour means. He'd become a leader who consumed people to move himself forward. Now, the Jewish tradition is that he solidified his position by putting down all of the pro-Egypt elements in the government. He put down anyone who disagreed with his view of how he should rule. So this seems accurate with how Ezekiel describes him. But his shtick only worked for a few months. In Ezekiel 19.4, Ezekiel, who he's writing this after Jehoahaz has been deposed, and he says, the nations also heard of him. He was taken in their pit, and they brought him with chains into the land of Egypt. The nations around Judah heard his yapping, and one of them decided to put him in his place. Verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 33 here of Second Kings chapter 23. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bands at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem. And he put the land to a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. 
Josiah went to fight Egypt because they were, Egypt was trying to link up with Assyria to push back the Babylonians. When that battle occurred, they did stop the Babylonians from gaining more ground, but they weren't able to take the city of Haran back for the Assyrians. And that stalemate essentially crushed the Assyrians and removed them from the table as a regional power. By default, in the west, where the Babylonians hadn't come over yet, that meant Egypt became the dominant power for the next three years. And so once the battle was over and the stalemate was achieved, Pharaoh turns his eyes on this yapper from Judah. Second Chronicles chapter 36 tells us that Pharaoh sent an army. He didn't even come personally. He sent an army to Jerusalem. That army was not contested when they arrived. The army walked into the city, deposed Jehoahaz, put him in chains, and then carried him north to be imprisoned at the military base where Egypt had made their operations in northern Syria. And so, just like that, the big talking populist was gone, and Judah now had become a vassal state owing tribute to Egypt, a hundred talents and a talent of gold. And so verse 34 says, Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the pro-Egypt son, made him, the son of Josiah, king in the room of Josiah, his father. And he turned his name to Jehoiakim and took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt, and he died there. So Eliakim, his older half-brother, Jehoahaz's older half-brother, he becomes king in room. And the phrase in the room means that uh, basically, Nico, Pharaoh Nico marketed him as the real successor. This is a guy who should have gotten the throne, and now he's on the throne. And then he changes his name. He calls him Jehoiakim. The name change is really interesting because Eliakim just means God is established. Jehoiakim means the Lord is established, which is a more spiritual name. So maybe Pharaoh did this with Josiah. When Josiah came out to fight him, they had a conversation. And basically, Pharaoh told him, the Lord told me to come up here and fight against the Babylonians. So why are you, why are you fighting with me? You're, gonna, this is not, you're not supposed to be here. And Josiah basically just said, that's fight. And so they fought. And Josiah was killed. So it gives us the impression, if Pharaoh's telling the truth, that Josiah should not have been up there. Uh, that seems to be the way the writer portrays the situation in the book of Chronicles. Well, if that's the case, maybe... Pharaoh's actions in deposing Jehoahaz were sanctioned by the Lord. And maybe in his mind, he's thinking, y'all need to get back to doing what Josiah did, not what this guy defined Josiah as doing. And so it says that Pharaoh Necho, he carried Jehoahaz away all the way down to Egypt, and then Jehoahaz died there. He's not buried with the kings who came before him. He's not even recognized as a true king of Judah. He's thought of as an imposter. It's interesting, Jeremiah, who had no love for Shalom, he critiqued him regularly in his prophecies. But he says to the nation, he says, first off, he says, don't weep for Josiah that he's dead. He says, weep for Shalom because he's never going to come back. In contrast, Josiah is buried with his fathers. He's buried in his own tomb, and he's buried with his people. This guy is going to be buried in Egypt, the place that God brought us out of. He says, weep for him. History hasn't changed much. When you have two radically opposing views, each group wants to erase the other group. And you see that in history. 
Look at all the Egyptian dynasties. You know, one of the reasons that we have such a difficult time trying to find the Exodus in the history of Egypt is because so much of that history was scrubbed. And should you be surprised? If you were the Pharaoh that caused the destruction of your nation, everything, the Bible tells us that God destroyed Egypt because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Do you think the people that replaced him would want him to be remembered? They would want to scrub all that information, letting a bunch of slaves get away, a God wrecking your entire nation. Nope. Let's just scrub all that information and move on. When you have two radically opposing views, each group wants to erase the other group. That's how it was here. Take him off to Egypt. We'll pretend he never ruled. This also shows us the temporary nature of human power and human promises. Jehoahaz promised to keep Judah Egypt free. It's going to be Judah first. But he ended up dying in an Egyptian prison. What's the point? Well, human promises, no matter how sincere or even how devoted to, they can't be counted on when that person isn't following the Lord. Jehoahaz, he was loved for a reason. Eliakim was not loved for a reason. But neither of them were walking with the Lord, which means both of their promises, they were things that were going to let you down. Jehoahaz's rhetoric, it was the same thing that doomed the exiles. This political problem is going to continue all the way to the end of Judah's history. We're not going to read about it much in Kings. He doesn't cover it much. The chronicler author does. Jeremiah talks about it. Later on, when Zedekiah becomes king, and then Jehoiakim, this guy Eliakim's son, becomes king, they're going to have problems now with Babylon, where they're playing the politics. And you've got the same thing. You've got a group that says, we don't want Babylon involved in us. We need to break away. And you've got another group going, if we break away, we're going to get squashed. And they hate each other to the point where, when Jeremiah is preaching to King Zedekiah, Jeremiah is telling him this, and Zedekiah goes, I know everything you're saying is true. I know I need to follow the Lord, but if I follow the Lord, my own people will kill me. Because what the Lord's telling me to do is to submit to the king of Babylon. This rhetoric eventually would be what doomed the people of Judah. It would be why the exiles who are reading this are in Babylon. And they would read these verses, and they would see that's what happened in Israel, in the northern kingdom. What kept happening with Assyria? God would judge them, and he would say, submit to Assyria and follow me, and I'll take care of you. And they would say, no, we don't want Assyria involved in our politics and our economy and our lives. We want freedom. And as a result of it, they would rebel against the Lord, try to do things their own way, and the politics would kill themselves, leave them weak for an outside force. The common denominator when you look at all of this political division and unrest in both Israel and Judah is this. The common denominator is when the people turn away from the Lord, it doesn't matter what your politics are. Now, what does Eliakim do in regard to Egypt? Well, rather than pay the tribute out of the taxes he's already collecting, he made the people who put his brother on the throne pay for it. Look at verse 35. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh. So he says, yep, we'll be loyal vassals to Egypt. But, here's the but, he taxed the land to give the money. According to the commandment of Pharaoh, he exacted the silver and the gold from who? The people of the land. The same people that put his brother on the throne instead of him. Every one of them, according to his taxation, to give it unto Pharaoh, Necho. 
That word taxation means it was a flat tax. Didn't matter if you were poor or rich, everybody paid the same thing. Everyone outside the government was required to pay this yearly tribute. Now, why did Jehoiakim pay it? Why didn't he do it out of the existing taxes that were already there? Why didn't he do it out of the royal treasury? It's not even that, when you look at it, 100 talents and one talent of gold is actually not that expensive. Egypt didn't want to hassle. They believed that Eliakim would be loyal, and so he kept it low. So why didn't he pull it from the the taxes he's already collecting? Well, Jeremiah tells us, if you read Jeremiah, it's because he wanted to use the taxes to build himself a bigger palace. That's how this winter starts his reign. Look at verse 36. Jehoiakim was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zebuda, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. So that's where you see the different mom name. It's because the different wife of Josiah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Now, this is, again, another short reign. Again, it's very similar to the nation of Israel when they were about to fall. You see these short reigns, a lot of transition in power, a lot of change. He only reigns for 11 years. In fact, there will be no more long reigns in Judah. Judah will decline fast, just like the nation of Israel did at the end. And he says he did that which was evil. So he wasn't any better than his brother. The writer's going to get into Jehoiakim's flaws in the next chapter, so I don't want to cover it all here. But I do think Jeremiah's words about when he took the throne are important because the political situation is going to shift in a few years, and then Jehoiakim's going to have a whole new set of problems. Well, before we get into that in chapter 24, I want to look at what Jeremiah said here because I think there's a really important lesson, and this may be the shortest message I've ever taught. I didn't expect to be done this early. So I'm not. So let's go to Jeremiah. Maybe I just wanted to give myself more time in Jeremiah. Now, the whole chapter, whole chapter is about the last, the situation where Josiah dies, Jehoaz takes the throne for three months, and now Jehoiakim is king. The whole chapter is kind of covering the, the mentality of, of, of Judah during those early years. So it's covering the period that we're reading about right now. But I want to read to you verses 10 through 19 and, and look at it. He says in verse 10, Do not weep for the dead, Josiah, neither bemoan him, but weep sore for him that goes away. He's going to call him Shalom here. He doesn't call him by the new name that, Jeho- that Shalom took, Jehoahaz. Don't weep for the dead. Don't weep for Josiah. Don't bemoan him, but weep sore for Jehoahaz, him that goes away, for he shall return no more nor see his native country. So he predicts that he will never be released. He will die in a foreign land. For thus says the Lord, touching Shalom, the the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which reigned instead of Josiah, his father, which went forth out of this place, he shall not return thither anymore. You see, there was a whole group that's like, no, no, we're going we're to get back in power again. We're going to free Jehoaz. We're going to put him back in the throne, and we're going to be free men. We're going to make it good again. We're going to do it right, and this is not the end. And Jeremiah predicts to me, he says, you need to move on because he's going to die in his place where they've led him captive. So you want to weep? Don't weep for Josiah. Weep because this guy's not coming back and he shall see this land no more. That's a prophecy that was fulfilled. Jeremiah quote says this before Jehoaz dies in Egypt. 
then verse 13, he turns to the current king, Jehoiakim, and he says this, Woe unto him that builds his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by injustice, that uses his neighbor's service without wages, and does not give him something for his work. So in other words, not only did he decide to use the tax money to build his palace, he only used it to purchase supplies. Chronicles tells us that he used forced labor. So he enslaved individuals in society who had jobs and were already doing other things, and he forced them to build this fancy new palace. Now, keep something in mind. Who built the old palace? Solomon. You don't get any richer, any wiser than Solomon. There's no way to improve on Solomon's palace. It tells you, gives you a hint of how greedy, how dissatisfied, that nothing would satisfy this guy. For thus, him that says, I will build me a wide house, and large chambers, large upper chambers. He says, I, it's, it's not big enough. I, I need a big roofed area that where I can enjoy the, the outside more on my palace. He cuts out windows, and, he, and it's sealed with cedar. The idea is they, they put panels on the walls, and they paint it with vermilion, make it colorful. I don't like the colors. Jeremiah says, you think you're going to reign? You think your kingdom's going to stand because you closest yourself in cedar? You think that's going to keep the enemy out? He says, what do you think kept your dad safe? And then he says this, did not your father eat and drink? Didn't he enjoy life? Wasn't he blessed and do judgment and justice? And then it went well with him? There's a word here that Jeremiah is preaching to this man where he says, if you do the right thing, God will bless you. He'll take care of you. Just like he did your dad. He judged the cause of the poor and needy, and then it was well with him. And then he says this, was not this to know me, says the Lord? Your dad had it so good, not because of his politics, not because of anything that you're presuming was there. He had it so good because his goal was to know me. His goal was to know me, and his goal was to obey me. Do you not understand that? He says, but your eyes, verse 17, and your heart, they are not but for your covetousness, your greed, and for to shed innocent blood, and for oppression and for violence to do it. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, my brother, or ah, sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Ah, Lord, or ah, his glory. He was such a good king. He was such a, a great leader. Nope. He will be buried with the burial of an ass, drawn and cast forth beyond the gates of Jerusalem. He'll be buried like a donkey. Now, if you read verses 1 through 9, 
Jeremiah gives more detailed charges. I'm not going to go into that. But he charges him with forsaking God's covenant, allowing idol worship. If you read Ezekiel 8, it gives details, exact details on the idolatry that Jehoiakim allowed to take place at the temple. And then he also says he murdered the innocent who spoke the truth about his wickedness. So this is a wicked man. But of all of it, the biggest charge is verse 16. Your father, he did completely opposite of you because his goal, his heart was to know me. Both sons knew why their dad did what he did. They knew that. God's not saying anything they hadn't heard before. Dad never told us about knowing you. Dad never told us about following you. Dad never told us the priority was was you. No, 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 they knew this. But having a deep, meaningful relationship with God wasn't important to either of them. And thus, in less than a year, when Jeremiah writes this, in less than a year, so much of what Josiah did was undone by a few bad men. So, happy Sunday. (laughs) What's the point for us? If you're a parent, or you lead a ministry, or you're mentoring someone, the greatest thing that you can pass on to them is your desire to know Jesus better day by day. It's the greatest thing you can give them. Now, my kids, they'll come to me sometimes and they'll, they'll ask me, they'll say, hey, Dad, especially as they start getting older, you know, what do you know about this? What do you know about this? And I'll be like, I don't know much about that. I said, but I know somebody who can help you out. Or maybe I'll say, well, that's an area I've learned a lot in. Let me tell you what I've learned. As parents, we have the experiences we do or we make the connections with people we do, and what a wonder to pass on those, those things we've learned or the people we know who've learned those things to our kids. It's wonderful. It's not that there's no value in that. I've tried to teach my kids as they get older the importance of monitoring your finances and budgeting and things like that. I've tried to teach them the importance of a good work ethic. I've tried to teach, and I've tried to pass on as much wisdom as I have. But the reality is the most important thing I want to leave them with is I want them to see in me and to learn for themselves that knowing Jesus better day by day that's what we need to desire. That's the thing I want to implant upon them. And I've even told my kids, I don't care how poor you are. (laughs) I was like, but if your desire is to know Jesus better day by day, and you're following him, I will be such a happy dad. (laughs) I know everything else will be taken care of. Give them that, and they will do fine no matter what comes their way. But if you fail to emphasize that, there are no guarantees that you will have passed on anything of lasting value. I want to leave behind a few good men, don't you? That's what I want my legacy to be. So let's commit ourselves to being those who pursue knowing Jesus ourselves, and then let's pass that on to at least one other person. Can you commit to that? The Bible tells us the Great Commission is to what? go into all the world and make disciples, right? It's not preach the gospel, it's make disciples. If you, if you look at it, do an interesting study. Go look at Matthew 28, verses 20, I think it's 20 through 22. 
Everything in New Testament language revolves around the verb. There's only one verb in those verses. It's make disciples. Everything else is a part, every other action word is a participle that feeds into the verb, modifies the verb. The main goal is to make disciples. How do you do that? Well, you've got to preach the gospel to them first. Then you've got to teach them whatsoever things Jesus has commanded, right? Baptize them. All the things that need to be done that help them become disciples, but the goal is always to make disciples. So, church, who are you discipling right now? If you're a parent and you have kids still living with you, your first priority should be to disciple them. If you're a husband, you, your first priority should be, one of your first priorities is to disciple your bride. You say, but she knows more than me. That's okay. That's okay. Pour into her, invest into her, then you just grow together, right? And if you don't have any of those things, then find somebody. You say, well, I'm not qualified to disciple somebody. If you're born again, you're qualified to disciple somebody. Because here's the truth. Mentoring someone, discipling someone, helping someone to grow in their faith is, boils down to this. Somebody told me where to find the, the stuff. Let me tell you where to find the stuff. Someone poured into me at some point and showed me these, the things that I've learned. So I'm going to pass on what I've learned to you. If you don't have anyone you're doing that with, I would urge you, exhort you. If I could compel you, I would. Seek the Lord about one person, just at least one. Just start with one. One person to invest your life into and to teach them the things that you've learned from Jesus that they might be able to carry that on and then pass it on to others. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we sense the weight of your words. I think that's why some of us get discouraged. I know that's why I got discouraged as a young believer. I can't disciple anybody. I still got my own problems I'm working through. And yet, Lord, you kept putting people in front of me who didn't know you or, you know, started to know you and they had questions. And Lord, I pray that you would you would speak to all of us if we're not mentoring, discipling, investing into at least one person, that you would speak to us to stir us up or that we would seek to be those who are passing on what you're teaching us and in particular to invest in our own lives to make it our chief desire to know you better day by day and then to pass that truth on to at least one other person, that they need to have that desire and to share with them anything we've learned that has helped us to grow that desire. Lord, make us those who are aware of our need to be obedient to your command to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so we can do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.